Hello, and welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. This is a podcast where we stir the pot and lick the spoon. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host, James Daly. Today, we are joined by our good friend, Emily Feathers. She is going to be talking with us a bit today about the concept of cultural appropriation, what it is, why it's bad, and uh, how to avoid it whenever you're doing homebrew and world building for your home world. We are stirring the pot so much today. We, it's we... it's going to be thick. <laughs> so, Emily, welcome. Thank you for having me. Just for clarification, in case this ends up happening, James and I both met Emily in the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronism. It's a medieval living history group. And so occasionally we may slip up and refer to her as Wu, because that is her persona name in the SCA. So if you hear us call her Wu, that is why. Don't be confused. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be very, very difficult not to call Emily Wu. So I guess the first question that we should ask, just to set a baseline for anyone who maybe doesn't know the term cultural appropriation, what is cultural appropriation? So cultural appropriation, and it's actually more apt to call it cultural misappropriation, but you can honestly use both terms, is very different from cultural appreciation and inspiration and cultural exchange. The concept of cultural appropriation has to do when you have two cultures that interact and one culture is more prevalent or dominant or seen as being more desirable to be part of that culture. And conversely, another culture is a minority culture and the dominant culture uses parts of the minority culture out of context and often against the express wishes of the minority culture. There tends to be monetary compensation involved in this, and it's very closely wrapped up in the concept of colonialism. I am by no, I should probably back up and say, I'm by no means a published expert on the concept of cultural appropriation. I'm what I like to call a garage expert on cultural appropriation (laughs) because I've had to educate myself because of my desire to learn about specifically Chinese history and the concept of the Society for Creative Anachronism. And when you are a white person who has no background with any culture in Asia, you have to educate yourself about these things. But to get back to the idea of appropriation itself, a very classic example of cultural appropriation is dreadlocks on people who are not of some sort of black descent. I try not to use the phrase African unless that's what we're specifically talking about because Africa is a continent and there are many cultures within that continent. So you can't just say African history any more than you can truly say American history because you're dealing with regions. So the classic example is dreadlocks. Dreadlocks have become popular with a certain subculture of white Americans. And there's the argument that the Norse had dreadlocks. I take that with a gigantic grain of salt because what we see with the concept of dreadlocks is, well, not the concept, but the practice of dreadlocks is black people are scorned for their locks. They're treated as dirty or unprofessional when they're anything but black hair is just fundamentally different from white hair. So it's because of that difference Dreadlocks are not nasty or dirty or anything like that, but improperly cared for in white hair, they can become quite gross. 
uh, sorry, my mother was a hairdresser. So to bring it all home, what you have is white people taking this thing that black people are scorned for and then trying to use it for their own purposes to be fashionable or edgy or something like that. And that is the heart of cultural appropriation. When you take something out of context as a white person and use it for your own glorification, that's the key is glorification. There's a huge difference between appreciation and enjoyment of a culture and look at me how special I am. So to use your example, if I could ask, a white person just wearing everyday dreadlocks because they enjoy the style, would that be appropriation or misappropriation? Or does it come when it comes with scorn for other ways to do it? Or if the person decides to do it, to wear dreadlocks as part of a Rastafarian costume for Halloween? At what point is it appropriation? At what point is it appreciation? What, what is it style? I'm so glad that you brought up the idea of doing a Rastafarian costume for Halloween. Cultures are not costumes. So as a white person, unless you are Rastafarian, and I know white Rastafarians, unless you are Rastafarian, don't be doing that. Because that is taking somebody's religion as a costume. And when people have been persecuted for having a minority religion and you wear that as a costume... That's when we become appropriative. That's when that's offensive. Right. And that's why I was trying to pick that example as examples of extremes. But so on the other end, if say I just happen to think I look particularly good in dreadlocks, would that be appropriation if I just decided I like the style and I'm going to use it as my own? So unless and until black people are no longer discriminated against for their locks, because, you know, in 2019 in the state of New York, they had to pass a law that black people's hair, the way it naturally grows out of their head, can't be a basis for discrimination for employment or other factors. That's insane. So until and unless black people are no longer discriminated against for their properly cared for locks, I don't think it's appropriate for white people to wear locks. I have read the research that says that people of Norse descent have a right to locks because the Norse had this practice. I'm not an expert in Norse culture. I choose to take that research with a grain of salt because what we're dealing with now is modern context. And that's a thing that you have to be aware of when you talk about appropriation. In historical research, in role-playing, in cosplay, it's context. And I'm sure I'm going to get lots of messages about, I don't know what I'm talking about, the Norse practice it, and here's all the research, until in our modern times, Black people are not discriminated against for this practice. We have to examine this through the lens of appropriation. And that was really long-winded and very complicated, and I'm sure I'm probably rambling. So <laughs> That's all right. If, but, uh, if anybody has a specific question. But to take the inverse of that, of the example that you're given, I remember a few years ago, there was a, a picture that went viral online of a young girl, I think she was about seven, eight years old, who had dressed up in a traditional Japanese outfit with the makeup and everything and done a, yes. a Japanese tea ceremony. And she got a lot of flack with people calling it cultural appropriation until the Asian community came out and said, look, she did all of this research to make sure that she was being authentic and actually trying to keep with the tradition of it. So this is okay. 
I'm really glad that you brought that idea up because I want to use the example of what we call in the amateur scenology community, the modern Hanfu movement. Hanfu is the traditional Chinese robes that for lack of more context, because a lot of Americans are not familiar with traditional Chinese dress, it looks a little bit like a kimono. It in no way equates to a Chinese kimono, but that's the frame of reference that I'm supplying for that. So here's what happens when white people go out and get approval, quote unquote, big fat air quotes, from the ethnic community that they're researching. What you're doing is lending legitimacy to one type of culture. And I use the term legitimacy. What I mean is you are reinforcing one perspective of one culture for the rest of the white world. And you're creating a barrier for the minority communities in those countries that you may not know about. The modern Hanfu community in China has been co-opted by racist Han people. Racism is alive and well in China. There are many, many ethnic groups. Even now, there is the indigenous Muslim people. And I'm going to mispronounce this, and I apologize. The only way I've ever heard it pronounced is Uyghur. And I've gotten it wrong, and I'm very sorry. Um, But there's an indigenous Muslim population. These people are right now being interred in concentration camps, in re-education camps. And John Oliver has an excellent video about this. So when you as a white person go out and do quote-unquote research for what a lot of white Americans amounts to going to find their closest Japanese-descended friend and going, hey, is this okay? And your friend who is in off the street is not going to bust it down for you and be like, look, dude, (laughs) here's all the ways you got it wrong. They're going to go, yeah, sure, it's fine. And you're not going to look any further than that. And that's going to cause you to further diminish those other ethnic groups that are also a part of Japanese history to go back to the kimono that the little girl worked so hard on. I applaud that small child for her interest in another culture than hers and her drive to learn more about something. I applaud her parents for being supportive don't think that little girl should have gotten the hate on the internet that she did, but the anonymity of the web gives us all a certain amount of plus two to our constitution. And the thing that you have to be aware of when you are creating characters in a culture that is not your own is to not narrow down those stereotypes. Don't reinforce those. And that takes us over to the controversy of the Oriental Adventures book. This book was originally published by, I think it was originally published by TSR in 1985. Yes. Only white people worked on this book. There was nobody of a single Asian descent that I'm aware of. I could be wrong. Metadata gets lost over the years. That was a long time. It was over 30 years ago. So there could have been people who were of some Chinese or Japanese descent that worked on the book that just aren't credited anymore. That's not to discount them completely, but if they're not mentioned, I can't find it. The Oriental Adventures book was written in 1985, and part of the controversy was it was written by white people and reinforced a lot of hurtful stereotypes. That's the problem. It's no different from... It is different. I can't say it's not different. But to try to put it in perspective for white listeners, it's the same thing as being Southern and moving out of the area and having random strangers come up to you when they hear your accent asking if swamp people is how everybody lives. Of course, swamp people isn't how everybody lives. 
That's one region of the South that is diverse and populated by lots of different people of lots of different colors. And as a Southerner who recently moved to Minnesota, I'm assuming that this is anecdotal first-person experience. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't lived until you've tried to find something that is readily available in any Southern drugstore that is a remedy for an ailment. And not only can they not understand you, but they don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to go ahead and guess you're talking about goody powders. Cause that was one of those weird things that I never even heard of <laughs> until I moved to the South. I grew up in California and I wound up moving to Tennessee. Oh, am I correct with one of those? <laughs> well, I have not been able to find a goody powder since I've been up here. Thankfully, I haven't needed one. But uh, I'm referring specifically to something called drawing salve. I have to enunciate because the lady at Walgreens thought I was saying drawing pads. <laughs> <laughs> no, ma'am, drawing salve. <laughs> it's made out of pine tar. It's for... It's, Okay, you have no idea what I'm talking about. All right, cool. (laughs) There's magic in Amazon. Yeah, and so I I eventually found some. For those of you that don't know what drawing salve is, it's a black salve. It's made from pine tar. It's commonly used for horses. It's contraindicated in humans, but I find it to be a really good topical analgesic. So to get back to my example, Oriental Adventures, like I said, it was written by white people in 1985. It was full of not just stereotypes, but hurtful stereotypes. So a difficult question I want to ask, is misappropriation or cultural appropriation only done by white people? So if this was a book written by, say, Latinos or South Americans or African Americans, would that still be cultural appropriation from another culture to another culture? Or is it only from a majority culture to any minority culture? I'm glad that you said, is it only from a majority culture to a minority culture? So in very simplest terms, yes. The culture that is ostensibly in power is what creates the context of misappropriation. It's kind of like the idea that there's no such thing as reverse racism because racism implies a balance of power. There can certainly be prejudice on the part of the minority culture. I'm not saying that they have a right to be prejudiced. What I'm saying is when a minority culture is mistreated through racism, that prejudice is what is created for them to help protect themselves with reason. So the appropriation is from a culture that is in power to a culture that is not. So let's say we're talking, let's go back to the modern Han Fu movement. We're talking about the ethnically Han Chinese people imprisoning the minority Muslim people. If they were to take something from that culture and then suddenly have restaurants of their food in Beijing while people are being tortured and quote-unquote re-educated out in West China in Xinjiang, then that's appropriation. Now, does it only come when there is, does misappropriation only happen when there is a, how do I want to phrase this? Give me a second. This is a hard topic. It's hard to... It's a, it is a very hard topic. Is it only appropriation if there is a militant or a cultural prejudice? So you use the example of the Wickers, I believe. Wickers? Weakers? The only way I've heard it pronounced is Weakers, and I've been told that's incorrect, but I also haven't anybody tell me the correct pronunciation. Okay. So I'm kind of... Well, and a lot of the conversation that I have with Chinese people all over the world is over Facebook Messenger, so it's always in text. I don't have a way to hear them speak. So you have where this group is in concentration camps and there's very clearly a cultural divide. There's a cultural oppression going on. 
So if a bunch of people from Beijing decided that in, say, the middle of March, they wanted to get together and they dressed up in lederhosen and had big steins and they had a, quote, quote, German or Swedish Oktoberfest, would that be cultural appropriation in China because they would be a cultural group in power misappropriating or misusing a seasonal costume, a seasonal event, having it just because they thought it was fun or funny or interesting, however they wish to do it without any regard to the European cultures that would be used otherwise. So now we're getting into the gray areas. Personally, because I know a lot of people of German descent, I'm of German descent. What a lot of people don't realize is that uh, the Appalachian Highlands, which is where I'm from, southwest Virginia, northeast Tennessee, is settled predominantly by Scots-Irish and German people. That's how you get people who are raised Lutheran in Tennessee, where everybody's Baptist, which I was raised Lutheran. And see, for your specific example, I don't think that most Germans in Germany care. I think they think it's silly you know, because that's just people parading around and being goofy. But uh, I don't know of, I mean, and, and Ian probably has a better perspective on this because his family is from Germany. Ian, what do you think for that example? Uh, personally, I don't think that the Germans really care all that much. <laughs> they're like, yeah, they're drinking beer and having a good time. It looks fine to me. So it's only if they care, only if it's by a cultural majority. So where you're getting tripped up is with the only. And that's the thing, is that this is such a vast concept. It's not yeah. binary. It is, no. it is not definitively yes or no. And that's the heart of what we're trying to get to as far as appropriation and creating your characters. Exactly. So when does it go from, this is a cool idea I've researched, to this is a cool idea I think it's kind of fun, to exceeding your acceptable limits of douchebaggery, I guess you'd want to say. <laughs> um, it seems like those lines are extremely blurry. When it I, reinforces a hurtful stereotype, that is part of what we're talking about. So let me use an example from Shadowrun. In Shadowrun, American indigenous people play a huge part in the history that leads up to the events that frame Shadowrun. There's talk of what's called the ghost dance. Different tribes have different versions and different context for a ghost dance. They may call it something different, but the concept of what they used was the ghost dance. Within that framework, one of the archetypes that you can pick for Shadowrun is a shaman. And in a lot of cultures, not just indigenous Americans, but across the world, the concept of a shaman is very spiritual. That's the whole point is that it's a spiritual concept. So let's say you're a white person, you sit down to create your Shadowrun character, and you've done this street shaman who is, and you don't go out, do any research on anything at all. You just throw a dart at a tribal map and you say, this person is Cree, they were born in Ohio, and you have no concept of whether a Cree person could have been born in Ohio. And then you start to say things like, they're a drunk, and they haven't had a job since they were 15, and... They live out on this reservation. And I'm not saying that you can't create tragic backstories for your characters. It's when you reinforce those hurtful stereotypes and you have no frame of reference and no context for them. Create the tragic backstories for your character. But not all indigenous characters have to have some sort of affiliation with alcohol, even though alcoholism is a terrible problem on American reservations and that needs to be addressed. So don't but, go full stereotype for your character. Yeah, it's when you don't sit down and try to see past that stereotype. Okay. Now, you have said several times, in fact, and again for a question, and Ian, 
probably needs to jump in at some point too because he's been very quiet this oh, podcast. I'm, I'm, he's been very I'm just, quiet. I'm just enjoying this back and forth that you two yeah. have going on. <laughs> but you have every instance have said you're a white person and you're doing this. Are white people the only people that can encounter cultural appropriation? So if you were some other culture, and the same thing, and you were still grew up Western civilization, Western society, very European, very whatever. Are those other ethnic groups, can they commit cultural appropriation against another group as well? Or is it something that only white Europeans fall into? Well, that goes back to the answer that I gave before, which is it concerns a balance of power and who is profiting from that. And this is the thing that I've had to struggle with as a white person who has a Chinese persona in the SCA. The profit that we deal with in the SCA is not monetary. It's cool points. It's reputation. It's that's neat. Did you see that? Or that person's doing something that nobody's ever seen before. And I will fully admit that when I started studying Chinese history for the SCA, it was because nobody in my region was doing it. But I did it out of a place of wanting to add to the historic discourse that we were having in the SCA. And when I created this persona, who is They're a runaway from a nouveau riche family in 1265 Hangzhou, which is the capital city of China at the time. And the idea whenever you make a persona in the SCA is that you make a real person. This is slightly different from when you're creating characters for role playing. So I had to go out and find things like, what does Wu enjoy eating? What does she do in her spare time? How does she make money? How does she support herself? And you have to answer all those questions. And that leads you further and further down the historic research rabbit hole. Where that comes into play is it's very important not to speak over the people who know more than me. And that's where we get into how to bring that into your character's creation. I was talking to a Chinese friend of mine who happens to live in Canada. She was born in China and then her family immigrated to Canada when I believe she was 11, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong. And she runs her own D&D campaign and she was running a campaign set in China. And she was sad that none of the white players wanted to do a Chinese character, and they were all afraid that they were going to be wrong and offend her. And the thing is, is that it is perfectly possible for white people to create characters in cultures that they don't live in, as long as they're willing to do the legwork. And this is the major problem, especially with American gamers. American culture teaches us from a very young age that... We have to be good at whatever it is that we do the first try. There's almost no room for growth in American culture. Now, we're starting to see a shift in that, especially as the older Gen Xers have older children that are starting to do things like enter the workforce and things like that. Older millennials enjoy the process of growth. Myself being a young Gen Xer and an older millennial, it's a process that we enjoy because we weren't allowed to do that when we were children. And the creating of characters in cultures that we don't belong to is an opportunity for learning and growth. If you want to do a character and you want to do it respectfully from a culture that you don't belong to and weren't raised in, you have to be willing to do that legwork. You know, I'm not asking you to sit down with the illustrated Cambridge history of China by Patricia Buckley Ebry, although I suggest everybody read that because it's amazing. (laughs) I'm not suggesting that people sit down and cram this in one night if you want to do one rice farmer from somewhere outside the city of Hangzhou that happens to be picked for an epic quest. You know, you just have to be willing to go 
read. And even in these days of sound bites, I hesitate to use this because it is videos by two more white guys. But uh, the Green Brothers do Crash Course on YouTube. And their crash courses have a lot of great information and can lead you down a lot of rabbit holes. We say in the Synology community that respect is the key, and that's a very broad term, but it means that you have to be willing to do some reading and some legwork, and you have to be able to say to yourself, maybe I'm wrong. And that's a fair point to make. And like I asked earlier, and you have answered, I think a large part of it is actively trying not to see the acceptable levels of douchebaggery. Don't obviously go and try to go full stereotype. Don't try to be offensive with your storyline or character. Uh, you were talking about with the SCA and making your persona, you know, you have to think about who your persona is, what they do for work, what they eat, what kind of things they like. And honestly, for a good role player, that's things to honestly consider for your character on a good role play table anyway. I mean, not everybody has that kind of time to put into a character, but those that can actually build that kind of story around their character, those are very more vibrant characters for the table anyway. Yeah, that's exactly it. One of the things that I did want to touch on was I've noticed that a couple of mini makers have started making minis that are in wheelchairs. That's fantastic. If you are able-bodied, don't be afraid to make a character that is disabled, but with the understanding that you are able-bodied and it will take some more understanding for you to, I don't want to say carry off, but to get into the mind of a character that is disabled, at least in mobility, or perhaps your character has a rare illness, a rare invisible illness. If you're going to explore difficult themes like racism or disability and the way that people treat those people or anything that's a little bit of a struggle, the key is to be able to say to yourself, I'm willing to learn and do better. And with respect to the combat wheelchair, that was something that whenever it first popped up, I saw it and my first reaction was, that's really cool. And my second reaction was, how did we not already have this? It was a void in the game that, being an able-bodied person, I didn't realize that void was there until someone pointed it out and put something in it to fill it. And then I realized, oh, this is a big thing. And then, of course, I read through the mechanics of what Sarah Thompson created in the combat wheelchair, and I'm, I'm reading through it, and I'm like, well, mechanically, I would go through and I would change this and this and this and this, and, and I'm doing this whole mechanical cartwheels in my head and then that evening I got home from work and I'm in the shower and I'm you know how you always have all your best ideas in the shower and it dawned on me I have created a false dichotomy here because my mechanics brain was saying that the options were you have the combat wheelchair or you have nothing and it didn't account for any filler material in between it didn't count for you know there are people who are not adventurers who just have a standard wheelchair Mm mm-hmm And so my brain was saying, well, it should start off as more of a basic wheelchair. But as I got to thinking about it and ruminating over it, I realized, no, the person in this wheelchair is wanting to be an adventurer. And they have gone out and made the effort to purchase this specialty piece of equipment so that they could be an adventurer. Or built it or whatever. Or built it or whatever. But the combat wheelchair is something that is the same concept that... The wheelchairs that people use for wheelchair basketball or that do the racing wheelchairs, those are not the same as your 
collapsible wheelchair that you see at the airport for shuttling old people around. No. They are a specialized piece of equipment, some more specialized than others, but that same concept plays in that not all wheelchairs in our mundane world are created equal. Some of them are specialized for certain tasks. You have motorized wheelchairs, you have specialized motorized wheelchairs for people with especially limited physical abilities. Mm -hmm. And so... As an able-bodied person, I was creating that false dichotomy by saying that it was the combat wheelchair or nothing. And it took a while for me to think about it, to put my prejudice aside and realize that, no, this is just a specialized version of something that should be widely available in your world to begin with. And that's something that's really hard to do. It's not a full cognitive dissonance type thing, but that taking a step back and then trying to look at something from a slightly different lens of focus or a different angle to get a different view of the world is one of those things that most of us don't do on a day-to-day basis. I see the world this way to step back and, well, you know what? That could be a way, but it's not necessarily the way. And so maybe we can see things from this other angle as well. With the understanding when you do that, that you actually can't ever fully understand. You can do your research and you can try your level best to understand the context but you will never be the person that is in that situation that you're trying to replicate so i guess the real question that's hard to ask and hard to know is when have you crossed the line and then obviously what can you do if you find yourself on the wrong side of that line what's the best way to correct that issue and not repeat it i suppose that's a really good question. Number one, you should never expect your friends of whatever background culture you're trying to work from to be your proofreaders. That's emotional labor that they may or may not be up for doing. They're busy. They've got stuff going on. Okay, that's just rude. But I mean, if you do have a caring, loving friend who wants to help you navigate those waters, then you are a very lucky person that you have somebody that's willing to take that on and help you. So like, let's say you've created a character You're very proud of it. You've done your legwork. You happen to be playing with some friends. And after the game, one of your friends comes over. Let's say that you have created a gypsy character. Before I get a lot of messages about that, I understand that gypsy is a racial slur. There's still a lot of people in America that don't understand that the word gypsy is a racial slur. And then, of course, the use of the word gypped, that is a highly charged ethnic slur. You've created this character and one of your friends comes over and says, hey, I didn't want to call you out on it during the game because I didn't want to embarrass you, but you've kind of taken this too far. You've created this stereotype without really realizing it, and I just want to bring that to your attention. If your friend wants to help you navigate making that better, then again, you're very lucky that you have a sympathetic friend that just wants you to enjoy doing something in a group of friends. However, if your friend comes over and says, hey, there's no way that this is acceptable. There's no context that makes this better. You're making me uncomfortable. I want you to stop. The thing to do then is stop. It's not an argument. It's not a discussion. That's when you've crossed the line is when you try to shout the other person down and say, well, I've done all this research and I put all this time into it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how much research and time and effort and how carefully you've crafted your Hero Forge Mini to go with it. If somebody says you've done this and it's crossed the line, then put it away. Put it in a drawer. 
And if you are passionate about it and you still want to keep doing it, then go get some more opinions. Find another educated opinion. So it's kind of knowing your audience. Yeah, it's knowing your audience. And if you have those friends that love you enough after the game to say, hey, this isn't cool, I want you to stop doing it, then you're still lucky. Because you still have those players and those friends that care about you enough to come tell you that you're being a jerk. Those are the best kind of friends. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the best kind of friends. They're the best kind of players. Another point on the don't take this to your friend to proofread is that you also have to keep in mind that the culture that you're trying to represent is not monolithic. That the people within that culture have different perspectives and different backgrounds and different lives. If you were to, say, create a black character, you would have a very different opinion if you went to a black person from rural Alabama as opposed to a black person from Detroit. Exactly. Well, even as Emily was talking about earlier, you know, where she says she doesn't want to use just African culture as a general, because you've got North Africa, which would be like Egypt and Tunisia and Libya versus West Africa, which would be like more Ghana, the Gold Coast, or Southern African, where you have like South Africa, and then you have the apartheid issues and and the Dutch colonial, or you have East Africa, which would be like Somalia and Ethiopia and things like that, or Central Africa. And all of those have vastly different cultures. So you can't pick, say, an Egyptian and put them in the Gold Coast and say, what, they're both African, because that absolutely would not work. Absolutely not, yeah. Again, it goes back to what I was talking about, where you as a white person, you go to one person, and you are inadvertently furthering one culture over another in that what you've perceived to be as a monolithic culture. So it has its own detriment. But that's the key. When people say, what do you mean be respectful? When somebody tells you you're being a jerk, listen, that's what being respectful means. I mean, if you just want to get down to brass tacks, that's what we care about, especially in the amateur scenology community in the SCA, is if somebody tells you you're being a jerk, listen. So once again, we will invoke Wheaton's Law? Yes. And it's so hard because... This is where the idea of cognitive dissonance comes in. You say to yourself, well, I put all this time and effort into this, and they're being a dick by telling me I'm being a dick. Not the way it works. It just isn't. So, like, even going with your example of someone making a shaman character, and then if you want to take, you know, the cultural idea of a shaman, even that comes with lots of different cultures. So, you know, were you a Native American shaman? Were you a Polynesian shaman? Were you a shaman from the Iberian Peninsula from thousands of years back? So, I mean, even the idea of something like that... So one person might come up and say, hey, obviously you shouldn't be a shaman because of this and this. And like, well, actually, I was going from this culture. But then, as you said, if a person at your table has an issue with whatever you do, even if it's something mundane, even if it's not appropriation or not, you know, hey, you know what? You use this voice at the table and it really grates on my nerves or whatever. Could you maybe try role playing a different voice? You know, at that point, you're going to be at the table with this person. You don't want to ruin their experience as well. So take that into consideration. For an example on that one, the character that I'm playing in James's game is a kobold monk. And part of the way I play him, because of an altercation long before the game started, he's missing most of the teeth on the left side of his face. And so periodically his tongue will just sort of flop out of the side of his mouth. But I made the decision not to go through with the physical movement or the actual description of him tossing his tongue back into his mouth because I knew that James, having Tourette's, would twitch off of the movement. 
Right. right. And so that with the Tourette's is an issue called echolakia. And if I hear certain sounds or see certain movements, I have a near irresistible urge to want to mimic that. So there are aspects of Tourette's that run very parallel to something like OCD. And that is something that could be a trigger for me. And so Ian, thankfully, you know, was like, my character would do this if you're at the table or if you're having, you know, a bad day or whatever, I'm not going to do that. And that was very considerate of Ian to say, hey, this is my character. This is what they would normally do. But I knowing you have an issue, I'm going to avoid doing that at the table. Yeah, and that's a really great example. Another example I wanted to use was there were some problematic characters in the prequel Star Wars movies. Trying to remember the name of the character. Thankfully, I'm sitting at my computer. You're not talking about Jar Jar Binks, are you? (laughs) Well, uh, I no, actually, I'm not talking about Jar Jar Binks. I'm talking specifically about, and I will bring it up here as soon as I can... (laughs) (laughs) no i don't want attack of the clones Uh, everybody wants attack of the clones that was the best Uh, clone wars was the best i agree clone wars was the best clone wars was the best thing to happen with the prequel trilogy i I really liked episode one and i will stand by that and i I actually the character i'm thinking of is watto he owned a junk shop he had this vaguely stereotypical Yiddish accent. I remember reading a lot about some serious issues with this character. And that was one of the things that people hated about the prequels was instead of going out and creating languages and creating accents and creating things that were new for episodes three, four, and five, it's like everybody just kind of phoned in one, two, and three when it came to things like that. So that's an example of reinforcing a hurtful stereotype in gaming. You create a character that is, I mean, the character even has a, he's, depicted as stereotypical in political cartoon. He's now, got I'm a not, big nose. Now, I hadn't heard that about Watto, though you mentioned it. I can see it. What I have heard is a lot of people have J.K. Rowling on blast for a lot of different things, but a lot of people have made a fairly, I'm not going to say it's a good point, but it's something that you can stop back and look and say, hmm, about the depiction of the goblins in Correct. the Harry Potter books, particularly in the film. And again, dealing with the voice, dealing obviously with the nose, they're all running a giant bank conglomerate. I mean, and when you look at it that light, I can't say, yeah, Rowling was trying to, you know, make a shaded attempt to say this or that. But it's a thing that we like to say on the internet of, you can't unsee it. Right, yeah. And so they make a fair... So was it done intentionally? I don't think so. Was it done unintentionally? Probably. But was it done one way or the other? Kind of, yeah. Exactly. It was done one way or the other. And when you start throwing in words like intention and unintentionally, that's where we start getting into where you're trying to talk back to people. There's been a lot written about problematic things in Rowling's books, especially the character of Cho Chang. When we talk about fetishization, that's a major problem in the amateur scenology community. The concept of fetish, fetishiza, fetishiza, fetishization. Thank you. <laughs> Don't create your characters with an idealized lens of these cultures because what you have is your white idealized notion of that. It's a fine line to walk. Be realistic as you can be in a fantasy game. This is a fantasy game. We are playing a game for fun. So that gets into the idea of inspiration. There's a lot of things in the world of Dungeons and Dragons are inspired by things. For your listeners that have read The Wheel of Time, it's completely obvious that Robert Jordan was inspired by a lot of different cultures when he created the cultures in The Wheel of Time. And you can see those cultures in the things that they do. The Shan Chan very closely visually resembled the Japanese armor of the Edo period and so on and so forth. When you get into inspiration, that's when you start 
taking this thing that is clear that you're just calling something by another name. You're just rebranding something. You've decided to take black and make it purple. Be inspired. Say, I like this aesthetic, but don't take it too far one way or the other. Don't idealize it. Don't demonize it. So now for another curveball question, because I happen to enjoy curveball questions. Imagine that. Let's look back and Disney's Aladdin. Very obviously based off of A Thousand and One Nights. So is that inspiration or did that trip into appropriation or is that something completely different? Unfortunately, Disney doesn't even see the line of appropriation. They just bust right through it like Like the cool Yeah, they're just, you know, oh yeah, and they just do it. Aladdin did a lot of things right. It also continued to reinforce the idea. A lot of really rough stereotypes. Yeah, well, not even really rough stereotypes, but the idea that going back to when white people choose to focus on one aspect of a much larger culture, you've reinforced that culture as the mainstream to the detriment of other cultures in the region or greater area. Does that start to make sense? It does. The question, you know, because again, one question leads to another question. When you're doing that, let's take, again, we can use either the African example or even the American example we talked about. So how do you do that? So obviously not everyone in America's Appalachian or, you know, deep Southern rural or, or, or Cajun, nor are they all surfer dudes from California or people from the Jersey Shore or New Englanders with that wonderful Kennedy accent. I do but not have that how much t- Kennedy accent. <laughs> <laughs> you're taking good care of my car. <laughs> so when you're doing that in a story, you might not have time to cover all aspects of a culture. So should you just not? Or is there a way to do that correctly? That's a really good question. I face that question every time I put on Chinese garb and go to an event. The thing with the SCA is that we ask everybody to do their best within their budget, which is part of the reason why, by my own choice, my persona is actually poor, which is a very important distinction in the SCA. Everybody in the SCA is considered to be minor nobility. Well, obviously, you're not going to have this many minor nobles running around together. So I choose for my character to be poor because I can't afford all that silk. But to bring it back home, the way to do it is to be mindful. And what I mean by that is going back to entertain the idea that you could be wrong and you could do this better. If you are committed to doing a character well and correctly, have the courage to admit that you are wrong. That's the main thing that you need to remember. And if what you're interested in doing is exploring the life of someone who you aren't, which is what fantasy gaming is all about, then be committed to the idea that you are probably wrong and you can improve. That's the thing is you're always capable of improving. That's an important thing to know in gaming or in life in general is there's always room to fix things. Unless a new life's been created or destroyed, almost anything else is repairable or improvable. I mean, you know, within, you know, again, we get off into the gray areas of I certainly wouldn't want to continue to work on a character if I had somehow inadvertently reinforced a stereotype and accidentally humiliated my friend because I'm just completely culturally blind. Like if you happen to be doing a live stream and you say something, there's a slip of the tongue. We're all brought up with these things that we now know to be problematic or racist, like the use of the word gypsy or things like that, that you don't learn in context. And then when you grow up, you learn better. There will always be things that to you are not that bad. And to the person perceiving it are egregious. But all you can do is try your best. If something like that, the best course of action is something very difficult to do. If something like that happens, the best thing to do is to step up and say, I see what you said. I hear your point. I have made an error. 
what can I do to try to fix it or not repeat it? A true apology. And again, you can't just say sorry, slap a sticker on it and walk away. But The only acceptable apology is changed behavior. If the person that you've offended, it doesn't even have to be a friend. It could, like you're at a con when we get to have those again. You're at a con, you're playing a tabletop game, and then later somebody comes up to you and says, you know, they're just hot about it. And they're like, man, you got all this wrong and you made us look stupid and I don't appreciate it. I mean, at that point you say, you know what, I'm sorry. If you want to talk more about it, if you have the spoons to do that, I say spoons. If you have the energy to maybe talk to me about it later, happy to buy you a drink and we can talk about it. If you don't want to, that's cool too, because you have to understand that we can't keep expecting minorities to do that emotional labor of educating us. That's where the legwork comes in. And I'm routinely reminded of a Korean friend of mine here in Minnesota who, especially with COVID going on and because she's Korean, she's not Chinese, but a lot of people can't tell the difference, unfortunately. I hate to say that out loud, but it's true. She gets a lot of flack in public these days and she's exhausted and she's hurt. And it's a gift when people who are exhausted and hurt want to use their energy to help you do better. And that's the thing that you have to see. So if somebody doesn't want to help you do better, you have to gauge your audience. Again, going back to knowing your audience, if that person is hot and you don't really think you're going to get any feedback from that quarter, drop it and then go home and start doing some more research. That's the thing is you can be a dick without even realizing you're being a dick by expecting people to help you get better. It's kind of like the three of us have all at one point or are currently heavy fighters in the SCA. If you show up every week and you don't spend any time making your kit more functional and you don't do any pill work and you don't ever work out and you just show up and your attitude is poor, then you're actually not committed to being a better fighter. You're just there to take up everybody's time. And that's the same thing with trying to create a character that's in a culture that you didn't grow up in. Don't waste people's time and energy when all you want to be told is that you're good when you're not. But that's where a lot of people misunderstand. You hear a lot of people say, how can I get better? And somebody says, well, have you tried not sucking? And people get all offended. Well, the background of that phrase is you haven't done anything on your own to get better. Though so probably have, not the best way to phrase that, not the most constructive way to phrase that criticism. but It, it isn't. And it took me a lot of years in moving out of my region to understand the key to that phrase. But up until it dawned on me, it's like, no, I haven't done anything. I haven't tried not sucking. Maybe I'm going to do that. And that's when I started finding better teachers and watching video and doing more legwork for myself. So you can't just not be a dick. You have to try not to be a dick. And you have to realize that there's implied a certain amount of frustration behind that statement because this is usually coming from someone who has been trying to help you and it just isn't getting through because you're not putting in the effort on your end to improve. Bingo. Yeah, legwork goes a long way. All right, so I think that we wrapped this up pretty good. I think it all comes down to do the legwork and don't be a dick. Yeah, and it takes you far in life and just about anything, really. Yeah, and be willing to say that your hurt feelings are not someone else's responsibility to fix. Yeah, because they aren't going to know that they've offended you unless you tell them that you're offended. I don't know if that's where you were going with that, but... It isn't quite where I was going with that. When you're dealing with things like appropriation and educating yourself about racism, things like that, be willing for your feelings to hurt. Because the people who are on the other end of that are, like I was talking about my friend, they're hurt and exhausted, and it's okay for you to hurt a little bit. You grow from that hurt. So I completely misunderstood what you were what you were saying there first. 
Um, no, and you're absolutely right. You we're not part of some great hive mind. We really are not. Even though we're empathic human beings, we you're right. Somebody has to clue you in that you've offended. But at the same time, you can kind of head that off at the past by not being a dick. <laughs> yeah, by taking the time and looking at what you've got in front of you and saying, okay, these are the things that I've put in here. Can some of these be interpreted in an offensive manner? Can exactly. some of these offend other people? Can they hurt other people? You have to be able to be intelligent about it and look at what you've done and ask yourself that question before you even put it out in front of other people. Yeah. And at the same time, don't be afraid to do it. Don't be afraid to do it. Just be aware that you are about to walk into something that could be painful. It can be a hard line to walk. And again, be considerate, know your audience, do the legwork. On the other end of things, if something someone does you find offensive, obviously depending on how egregious it is, but throwing your dice and screaming at the table, probably not the best way to bring that topic up. But again, on a break after the game, hey, here's this. I don't think that's quite right. Don't you think this cast this group or this thing in a bad light? Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because now we're getting into tone policing. And that's another thing that you can't do. If you're trying not to be a dick, if you've offended somebody to the point where they're throwing their dice at the table, you got to step back and own that. You just take everything in the context of the situation that you're in, do the legwork, work on trying not to be a dick. I meant from the other side, though, if someone has offended you or your group or something like that, there is a way to address that. Trying to do so in a constructive manner will go a lot further to fixing it than screaming and flipping the table, etc. I can't say that I still agree with that idea. I think we're kind of talking past something. But uh, again, because I think kind of when you say constructive and how to address that, I don't know. I think I even take screaming and throwing things as feedback because clearly I have upset somebody very much. But it goes into reading your audience. If you've got a player who always shows up and their attitude is poor and nothing that the party ever does is right, you're not going to listen to them whenever they scream and throw their dice. It and even see see I'm doing it too. Even now I'm getting into tone policing. It turns into hear the message, even if it's a hard one to hear. Screaming and throwing things at the table—that's a hard message to hear, but you still have to hear it. You do need to hear it. But what I'm trying to say is that if it's—and again, I'm not familiar with the term tone policing, and so maybe this is my ignorance speaking at this point—but if you can clip things off before you hit level three or four at a level two, like something bothers you, and then you know you step up and say privately to the person, "Hey, this bothers me," versus publicly trying to shame and shout down the person, because that's oh. going to make that person defensive. And then say, well, they just wanted to yell and then doesn't matter what they've said after that or what you've said after that. They have okay. blocked you out versus, yeah. you know, before I... things get to a point, go up and address the person, but do it in a private, calm manner, if at all possible. And again, yeah. there are some things that are just so egregious that. Now I see what you're trying to say. So the concept of tone policing, really good example is we've all seen those threads on social media where a clearly female presenting poster and a clearly male presenting poster are talking to each other. And the male presenting poster is clearly just doing stuff to tweak the female presenting poster in this conversation. They're not doing anything instructive. They're just what abouting. And then the female presenting poster has had enough of it. And there's, they just say, I can't talk to you. You're not having a constructive conversation. And the male presenting poster says, well, if you're going to be angry, I can't talk to you about this. That's tone policing. Gotcha. So it's almost sea lion sea lining. Yeah, sea lining is a good one. Tone policing, to bring it into the modern world and modern context, is Colin Kaepernick's kneeling protest. 
there's nothing violent about this. And it's not even about the national anthem. It's been turned into there's really no acceptable way to protest to some people. So tone policing is continually ratcheting somebody's message until you've put them in this pigeonhole where you don't listen to them. So if that makes a little bit more sense. I think that's where we were talking about two completely different things. It's never up to the person who is offended to bring it to you for you to deal with. Those are good friends. It was said before in a poem by William Blake called Poison Tree. I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath. My wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not. My wrath did grow. That is one of my favorite poems, yes. It's also one of my favorite, too, and it illustrates the point. Rando in the crowd at a convention is not going to come up to you and be like, that was, you know, well, it's a 50-50 at this point. <laughs> they, might, they might come find you and they might punch your lights out, but it's not on them to correct you. That's the point that I'm trying to make. That's asking for more energy from that minority population to educate you and that's wrong too so i can see that point but again unless if you are blind enough to accidentally do something offensive then obviously you do not see where the offense is so at some point someone does need to come up and say this is an offense so you can't even recognize it and learn i mean you know if you're lucky i mean that would be the only way i could imagine understanding you've done something wrong is someone to point out hey that's incorrect yeah especially if it's from a culture that you don't belong to yeah but yeah again if, if you're lucky so I think that we've thoroughly beaten this horse. No, this is a horse we're going to have to ride for a long time because we've got several hundred years of things to work on. I didn't say it was a dead horse. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying that it was thoroughly beaten. That is correct. Um, we're going to ring the bell and wait for round two. <laughs> so I figured that since we have a guest on, that we would do a sort of a lightning homebrew sort of deal. One thing that we both know about Emily is that she has a love for Lovecraft. I do, which again, is in and of itself, I'm very aware of Mr. Lovecraft's racism. Yes. He was not... He, a good person. He was not a pleasant dude. <laughs> he was not a pleasant <laughs> human being, but this is one of those instances where we're having to, I want to say, divorce the artist from the art. For a minute, yeah. For a minute, but we're getting off topic. Because of your love for eldritch horror and weirdness in general. Um, weirdness in general. <laughs> yeah. So last night on Reddit, I found a, it's called the Weird Bug Generator. Okay. And it's just a list of random roll tables where you make a bunch of random rolls to create your bug. It uses all of the dice. And so I was thinking that maybe we could go through and each of us take turns rolling on one of the tables and once we have all of our roles together, figure out what the thing is. Great. Let's do I it. I like it. All right. So, Emily, as our guest, I'm going to let you go ahead and make this first roll. So we are going to make a 1d4 roll to determine okay. its locomotion, how this thing moves. Okay. One. One. Okay. It flies. Hot. Okay. All right. So, James, give me a d6 roll. What does this thing eat? A six. It eats carrion. I like Amazing. it. Amazing. All right. So I'm going to... So far, we are rolling a uh, Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> we are. <laughs> roll Jeff Goldblum. He's only got, like, the one wallet. All right. So I'm going to roll the next one. The next one's a D8 for size. A five. It is the size of a full hand. Okay. So, so it is human hand so size. So it's kind of wee. It's a smaller Jeff Goldblum. Well, on, on the scale of nearly microscopic to human-sized, it's decent. 
Okay. All right, so we're going to need a D10 roll and a D100 roll. One of them is going to be the number of limbs, and the other one is going to be the number of eyes. So which one do we want? Do we want the D100 roll to be limbs or eyes? Eyes. Okay. I guess I'll roll the D10 or limbs. Okay. Five. Okay, so it has five limbs. So we have a... What we have now is a flying starfish. (laughs) Well, it could have a prehensile tail. Tail is a limb. It could, yeah. Yeah. So five limbs... All right, James, how many eyes does this thing have? Do you want me to roll the full percentage, or do you want to yes. roll the 10 and I'll roll the... Yep. Okay, go I'll ahead roll the full roll percentage. Full percentage. We've got 11. 11 eyes, okay. Interesting. Oddly enough, whenever I was going through this last night, I also rolled 11 eyes. Okay. The fates have spoken. The fates Indeed. have spoken. So I got the next one, which is a D12 roll for its method of defense. Okay. Got a four. It uses a stinger. Ooh. That's where the fifth limb comes in. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. It's got a. It's like a so, scorpion. Yeah. It's like a four-legged scorpion that like flies. <laughs> That's kind of terrifying. Think I read about the Book of Revelation. It's a hell of a face of a woman and the roar of a lion. And oh, wait, no, that's something different. This is this is this it's is a tiny little manticore. Yeah. This is well. I'm thinking this is more like almost like a face hugger because that's that's about the size we've got so it's, it's a yeah face actually that flies. well that's true Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> okay so emily give me a d20 roll okay 19 everything is 19 everything is 19 that is for the dark tower folks out there of which we are nerds number 19 is parthenogenesis can reproduce without a mate at astonishing speeds Amazing! They're tribbles. They're they're tribbles. It's hugging tribbles. Face hugging scorpion tribbles that fly. This is becoming truly terrifying. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> do they make the qu- cute squeaking sound? Yes. Oh. So now we can find these at Build a Bear. <laughs> no, Ian. They go did a chick. Did a chick. Dumb a chum. <laughs> they are not lobstrosities, no. They are lobstrosities. All right. So now we are going to make it weird. Now we're going to make it weird. <laughs> now we're going to make says. it weird. So James, okay. give me a D100 roll. Another one. Okay, give me a second. Two. Two has humanoid limbs. Oh, dear God. <laughs> wow. This is Lovecraftian. <laughs> so, Amazing. so just because, just because I want to roll again, because I'm one roll short, I'm going to roll on this table again, because it's a D100 table. So 24. The stomach is a bag of holding. Oh my. And they eat carrion. That is wild. <laughs> oh, oh my. Yeah, you can tell my dice have been really upset with me, because I haven't really used them since... About May because of the whole COVID thing. So they're they're rolling very low today. So yeah. Cold dice are cold. So we have a flying creature that feasts on carrion, is the size of an open hand, has five limbs, 11 eyes, uses a stinger, can reproduce without a mate at alarming speeds, has humanoid limbs, and its stomach is a bag of holding. So I yeah. see the stinger as like a gnarled, fat, calloused old man's hand with the, the finger that points out and pokes people in the chest that's the stinger just kind of thumps people thump. yeah that gnarled protruding finger yeah okay so that's wow my contribution to that mental image there you go you're welcome that's 
That's some mountains of madness right there. <laughs> this sounds like a wonderful table. I kind of want to play with it a lot. Oh, yeah. So the flying question, how is it flying? Does it have wings? Spirit fingers. <laughs> Spirit fingers. Well, I mean, maybe it's electromagnetic all on its own. I was thinking because it feeds on carrion, maybe it more is it like a bloat. It floats. So it's like methane. If Ooh. the stomach's a bag of holding, that it's very possible. That's... Yeah, because it, it's just stuffed full of rotting carrion and the methane causes it to float. Now yeah. I'm kind of thinking of the uh, overlords from StarCraft. Yes. That make the oppa sounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, they can make oppa sounds too. That's how they propel themselves. They let out these little bursts of methane. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, that's a thing. Kristen, my wife, whenever I'd play StarCraft, she always called the overlords oppas because she thought they sounded like the oppa from the <laughs> Avatar. And they kind of do. Not wrong. So I'm seeing these... These are going to be like battlefield scavengers. Instead of ravens at the end of the fight, these things just sort of appear and feast on the carrion. And because they are all these humanoid limbs, I'm picturing them also having humanoid eyes. Because so just they, call it the because hand they, of Morgan? Because they have 11 eyes and it's just this mass of flesh and hands. Yeah, that's definitely nightmarish. That is definitely some other world. Here we go. It has 11 eyes, right? Yes. So an eyeball on, on each fingertip and then one cyclopean eye in the center. So it'd have to have two, two per digit and then one in the center. Well, you're thinking it, it has four has limbs, but they're humanoid. So on each of the four limbs would be hands. I'm guessing the back would look like feet or does it have four sets of hands? I mean, it's got five limbs. It has five limbs. So I'm thinking the front limbs would be like humanoid hands because it's human hands. So on each where the fingernails would be or on each fingertip would be an eyeball and then a cyclopean eye in the center body. I was picturing it more as because it's hand-sized, each of the limbs is more like a finger as opposed to a whole hand. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm thinking. And so, yeah, I can totally see an eyeball where each fingernail is supposed to be. And then maybe just like a ring of eyes in the middle. Around the stomach? Yeah. That way we can see what it's eating. Mm. Put those eyes on the underside, like on the palm, with an opening, kind of like the face on D's hand in Vampire Hunter D. Oh, this yeah. This is the worst hand of Fatma ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it skitters across like it, or like, uh, is it Thing from Adam's Family? Yeah. yeah thing. Family's yeah. thing. It is something completely different. We're not going into clowns here. Well, I mean, technically. It's, no, there's no technically. You know, <laughs> there is no technically. We're not going into clowns. So I'm picturing it's kind of like Thing, where it'll skitter across the ground like a disembodied hand. But once it's fed, it fills up with methane gas and it floats. What it really needs is it comes with one red balloon that it just kind of carries and that's how it floats. <laughs> We're not right, y'all. <laughs> we are not. <laughs> but I, th I think we have created our nightmare monster here. So again, thank you, Emily, for coming on and talking with us today. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is a really important conversation to have. And it's heavy and it's hard, but we still have to have it. Which is why we had the levity here at the end, so that we don't go out with all the heavy. We're going to talk to you about possibly coming back at some point, maybe for some gameplay. Great. Sounds fun. If everybody can put up with my accent. For our next episode, we're going to be going into our final character in our homebrew showcase. 
our final character is going to be a hobgoblin cleric. So I'm very excited about this. Yeah, James is very excited about this. So our next episode, we are going to be going over the hobgoblin race and the modifications to the published hobgoblin that we would make for the race at our table. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste, or on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Again, thank you for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.